my mom looked at me and said, you're an idiot. <laughs> when you were a baby, we just took the food we ate, crushed it up, and we fed it to you. Have our stringent feeding strategies in the current, maybe the last 20 or 30 years, do you think that has led to more failure? Yeah, I, I think without a doubt it has. And, and I'll point out, you should always listen to your mom. <laughs> yes, that's, 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 that's right. Welcome back to the Allergy Partners Podcast. My name's Chilka. I'm going to be joined by Dr. T, who is going to be my amazing co-host, and Dr. David Fitzhugh. You all know my amazing co-host, Dr. T. If you do not, Dr. Thea Garajan is a board-certified allergist and immunologist. He's been practicing since 2010 after graduating from Duke University Allergy and Immunology Program. He practices in Northern Virginia outside of Washington, D.C., He's a former board member of Allergy Partners and is active in National Allergy and Immunology Specialty Societies. He has published numerous scientific publications and received awards in research, including the American Academy of Pediatrics section on Allergy and Immunology Outstanding Abstract Award. He's been named a top doc in the Washington DC area several times, and he strongly believes that open and robust communication between patients and providers leads to better health outcomes. Dr. David Fitzhugh is our board-certified allergist at the Allergy Partners of Chapel Hill in North Carolina. He graduated from College of Virginia Medical School, completed his residency at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and did years of research at Duke and UNC prior to graduating from his fellowship allergy immunology program at USF. Thank you, Dr. T, for co-hosting as always, and take it away. Welcome to the Allergy Partners Podcast, and thank you, Choka, for that wonderful introduction. And our topic here is something that has become more prevalent in our daily advice to families. It's the primary prevention of food allergy through diet. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Anna. My pleasure. So what are the risk factors for infants who might later develop food allergy? Yeah, it's a great question we deal with every day. And, you know, the biggest risk factor by far that's always associated, many times associated, is atopic dermatitis or eczema. Clearly the strongest association. Um, and when it's severe, that's when we need to be careful. Uh, other risk factors are family history, particularly parental history of food allergy, mild, moderate eczema, and also other food allergies. So the child with a single food allergy is more likely to have another food allergy than someone without a single food allergy, if that makes sense. In people with those risk factors, is there a concern for feeding these foods to the children? Should they go see an allergist first? Should they be tested before feeding these foods? This is a loaded question. Yeah, right it's, it's, I mean, it's such a fraught topic and, and subject. And, you know, I think it depends on what your risk factors are and what your perception of the risk factors are. Uh, I think a current guidance supports you should at least have a considered conversation with your allergist, particularly if your child has severe eczema. And even severe eczema is fraud, right? Because uh, the definition is a little bit nebulous, but we would say someone that's had a child, infant who's needed topical steroids for something like 12 out of 30 days for two separate 30-day periods. Um, that kind of child, I think there should be consideration for testing. But, and Lori mentioned this earlier too, testing is imperfect, right? Because we're talking about really screening testing, not diagnostic testing, right? When you're screening someone who has no history of ingestion reaction, the testing is relatively poor in terms of specificity. So sometimes it can have as bad as a 50% positive predictive value. 
have to be careful because we don't want to suddenly scare parents who you know have children who might have risk factors but who might not necessarily have chronical food allergy. So we have to be a little bit careful with that. So I'm gonna push back a little bit on this. Yeah, sure. And you and I have had this conversation before. I am one of those where I spend a lot of my time convincing parents not to do any food allergy testings. Maybe half my day yeah. is done doing that. There are such a high risk of false positives, especially these kids with eczema. Absolutely. And there's good data that shows that either taking a food out of the diet and or not giving the food early in life can actually cause true food allergy formation that can be a lifetime of disease. Yeah, no, I think we really, really want to avoid labeling kids unnecessarily because we spend an inordinate amount of time delabeling them and doing challenges, etc. Um, I think this conversation about testing for a high-risk kid is just something that needs to be had. And part of it is you know, you know, their parental preference. I mean, sometimes if they have another child with a food allergy, there might be sort of a practical delay, right? Because they're anxious about introducing it and we'd rather get it in early. So I think if a negative test in that kind of child could help us introduce it earlier to decrease your anxiety, I think it's worthwhile. But yeah, you run the risk of a false positive and I think you can paint yourself into a corner. So I mean, I totally agree with you that we need to be careful about avoiding false positives and using testing only in kind of a measured way. You know, the guidance has changed dramatically in terms of the timing of when in early life to introduce these foods. When my 12-year-old was an infant, my wonderful mother spent many, many months helping us uh, take care of him. This is now uh, 2000 and I should know this, <laughs> nine. Uh, and you know, as a time board certified pediatrician and a fellowship training allergist in a food allergy specialty research group, I felt I knew everything. And I fed my baby single ingredient foods and stage one foods and stage two. My mom looked at me and said, you're an idiot. When you were a baby, we just took the food we ate, crushed it up, made it a safe texture and consistency, and we fed it to you. We didn't do this single food stuff. Looking back, now that we have all this new data information, I sort of feel like she was right and I was wrong. Have our stringent feeding strategies in the current, maybe last 20 or 30 years, do you think that has led to more food allergy? Yeah, I, I think without a doubt it has. And, and I'll point out, you should always listen to your mom. <laughs> <laughs> Most important that's right. lesson. That's right. But no, I think I think 100% we unfortunately probably have contributed. And I think despite well-intended guidelines earlier on, where there was a thought, but without much data behind it, that delayed introduction might be useful, um, you know, that was the recommendation by many different professional societies. But I think as we've gathered more data, you know, initially, particularly with the WEEP study 2015 for early peanut introduction, but there have been a number of really good evidence-based studies, certainly for peanut, but also for egg, uh, and we extrapolate from egg and peanut to the other common food allergens, that honestly, for almost all kids, early introduction of what we might call allergenic or complementary foods by the time they get to no later than about six months is the right time to get these in. And to your point about primary prevention, right, I spent so much of my day with secondary prevention, right? These kids have already developed food allergies, I'm doing lots of food immunotherapy, trying to decrease their allergy levels, et cetera. But what we really want to do 
as doctors, it's the holy grail of medicine, right? Prevent the disease in the first place. So I think it's very clear that for most kids, early introduction of all the common allergen foods by around six months is the right time to do it. Um, and the only kind of asterisk there, we can rumble after the podcast, but the only kind of asterisk there, I think, is for what we might consider high-risk kids, particularly severe atopic derm, there should maybe be a conversation about testing with this nuance that the testing with no clinical reaction history is very much imperfect and parents need to know about it. The line I use with this is a diverse diet early in life prevents food allergy. But if we get into the nitty gritty details, is there a different data set for peanut versus egg versus dairy versus soy versus sesame? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And for peanut and egg, the data is really robust. There's a lot of really good control trials to show that early introduction works and clearly prevents development of those particular allergies. For the other common allergens like cow's milk, soy, uh, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, etc., um, the data is not as robust. But nevertheless, I think we can extrapolate and reasonably assume that early introduction of those other allergens beyond peanut and egg probably makes sense as well. What about these? I'll call them maybe bougie products that are out there that help families for a cost with early introduction. And there's many of these products out there. Sure. What is your opinion on them? Yeah, I my opinion of these, these are products that are broadly speaking feeding on critical anxiety, and I don't think they're necessary products. I, I think they could be helpful because sometimes it's hard to introduce esoteric foods like shellfish in a six-month-old, but the bottom line is that I would just feed kids. The evidence supports feeding kids a diverse age-appropriate diet, and I think you do, you do your kids a world of good without the need for these kind of bougie products. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with you. I do think there are... I, I sometimes do talk to parents about this more in the sense of giving them confidence. If you give one of these products first and your child does well, hopefully that gives you confidence to give the actual foods to the child. But I do agree with you. I think there is probably a placebo effect in in some of these products. And and to be fair too, we we looked at this last week at a food allergy conference in Dallas. Some of these products could potentially be harmful because they're very low dose allergen and you might actually wind up sensitizing these kids without giving them enough for the primary prevention you're seeking. So, you know, I'm not here to speak against any particular product, but I don't think it's something that's by and large strictly necessary, but it might help with food anxiety. What about hypoallergenic formulas? Do these work in preventing food allergy? Yeah, there's really no data for it. Um, you know, the data that exists is mainly for hydrolyzed cow's milk formulas, so you know, the protein are chopped up in lots of little pieces. And if you look at the data, there's a lot of data for prevention of eczema, and that does seem to be useful, but there's no trials that show that it's feeding a quote-unquote hypoallergenic formula is likely to prevent food allergies. So I don't think that that should be something that parents are doing as a measure of primary prevention. I totally agree with you. And I think another controversial topic here is exclusive breastfeeding. There were previous guidelines talking about exclusive breastfeeding temporarily preventing cow's milk allergy until I believe it was age four or age two with more modern data maybe pointing against that. What are your thoughts on exclusive breastfeeding? Yeah, I mean, I think that we can probably all agree that exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life is useful for a variety of general health benefits, but from a food allergy perspective, there's just not data there overall. So I don't think that if for whatever reason mom can't nurse, I don't think she should feel bad about it. And I don't think that we are creating greater problems. And in my own practice, I'm sure you guys do this too, whenever parents come, I always wonder, what happened? What did I do wrong? And I always tell them, look, 
I, I, I want to disabuse you of any internal guilt. You didn't cause this, and you probably could have changed this outcome. So don't don't sweat that, right? It's not because you stopped nursing in two months. No, and I, it's a, such a strong point. I think our wonderful mothers have so much on their plate, and and there is sometimes this maternal guilt. Yeah. And I agree with you. That is uh, not the inappropriate way to look at it. Nothing was done wrong. This is unfortunately something that happens in some families. So going back to that maternal kind of side of the story, what about dietary interventions for the mom while pregnant and or nursing? These have any known effect on preventing or causing food allergy? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think one that we face every day and probably the most common scenario is the mom who already has a food allergic child and now she's pregnant with a second or third or even you know, more child. And the question is, hey, I want to do everything I can to avoid a food allergy with a new baby. Um, this was looked at in the early 2000s in terms of exclusionary diets. So, hey, telling mom, pull out the common food allergens, and really did not seem to make any difference whatsoever. So I think to that degree, there's really no good data for exclusion of allergens. And the corollary to that statement is, broadly speaking, the best advice is to keep all common allergens in the diet. Although I can't say there's, there's not compelling data for prevention by keeping allergens in, but there is data that excluding the allergens doesn't seem to matter. So big picture, I think the advice should be going forward. Maybe we should tell mom, unless, there's, unless she has her own maternal reasons to exclude some food allergens, she should keep them in the diet. I totally agree with that. And one of the stories I tell when families ask this question to me is when my wife was pregnant, I forgot which kid it was. How many kids? Uh, I know, it's not that many, but you think I would know this. Um, she ate peanuts every day or peanut butter. It was one of the few foods that didn't cause an aversion yeah. for her while pregnant. And what's more important here is maternal health and well-being while pregnant and nursing. The dietary inclusion or exclusion without a robust data set to guide us on whether that affects food allergy really shouldn't be taken into account. The mom should be the most important question here. Your mom would agree. <laughs> Thank you. Um, with foods, do you also feel like now, like, like Dr. T was saying, back in the day, our parents just give us spoonfuls of everything, right? Yeah. Without jotting down any notes. No bougie. Um, no bougie. No, no bougie. <laughs> no bougie. Just, just food. dirt, right? Just, <laughs> just eat it. It's dirt. It's fine. It's dirt. Um, do you feel like A, overuse of antibiotics has changed our gut health? That's affected it. Do you think that, I honestly think that our parents just desensitize us without really knowing that's what they were doing. Like, I would get a rash, it's fine, you're fine. Just, you know, put some fix on it. <laughs> right? You're fine. Six months later, I'm eating peanut butter. No big deal. So I feel like the times have definitely changed. But I think a huge thing that myself and Dr. Perrin talk about is just the the biogenome of your gut, right? The gut health, the antibiotics, the probiotics, all that's changed and we're just more aware of stuff and people have had more anxiety about it. Yeah, yeah I, to your first point, I mean, I, there definitely is really fascinating research on food allergy and the gut microbiome and, and gosh, I can't quote who it is off the top of my head, but there are people looking at deficiencies of specific microbes in the gut and some of those, uh, some of those animal models at least point towards there could be specific alterations in the gut that predispose to food allergy. Um, to the point about is just general overuse of antibiotics causing some of this? I think the answer, without being able to show you a, a proven study which hasn't happened yet, is probably, right? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that probably this is happening and any time we are sort of monkeying with our natural flora in our gut, we are 
probably changing things like intestinal permeability and other issues that might predispose. So yeah, I, I think that probably plays a role. What was the second part? That our parents were just doing OIT on a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, There were geniuses back then. <laughs> I, I'm actually gonna extrapolate and go a little bit more meta on that question. Yeah. Food allergy seems to be a disease in developed countries, oh, yeah. and you're seeing in developing countries, yes. India, China, the yeah. Middle East, increasing amounts of food allergy. Why? Well, and uh, I will say to that point, I'm sure you guys are aware, there's some really elegant studies looking at age-matched kids who grow up in urban or suburban environments versus you know, sort of farm or rural environments, and they look at nasal and gut flora, and they show that kids with a much more sort of biodiverse gut and nasal flora in the rural population, the rural population, thank you, know, have way less, way, way less significant, statistically significant uh, uh, incidence of any form of atopy, whether it's food allergy, asthma, or eczema. So I think that's at least indirect evidence that, yeah, this going back to the original 1986 sort of hygiene hypothesis and living too clean is playing part of it for sure there's no two ways about it so me telling my boys that when they're playing outside in the dirt and they come inside and my wife yells at them to wash their hands and i'm like it's okay kids don't wash your hands no what it's we need right. some farm animals that's the answer okay. we need so, some so, farm animals so and dogs that go out and run around in the pastures no, that's good and enough come okay. in and bring okay. them back gotcha. to okay. okay yes okay Absolutely. i disagree with both we all gotta get some <laughs> i do think the dirt in suburbia dc is fine <laughs> but uh, yeah. Correct. Okay. Awesome. Um, so another question I have is a lot of these parents come in with kids just reacting with a little bit of eczema, like you said. I went to a food allergy seminar a couple years ago, and they basically were saying, even if you have eczema and you have a little bit of flare of eczema with a food allergy, you want to introduce the food by mouth within a week or two because you don't want it to turn into the stomach reaction. Yeah. So a lot of these newborns that come in, the parents are like, oh, my patient said, to completely avoid it, to get a diet. And I'm like, no, 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 come in, come into my office right now. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I mean, you know, any kid with eczema, I, I, I would argue that probably any kid with eczema, if you screen, and we don't recommend this, but if you screen wide panels of foods with blood or skin testing, you're going to find them sensitized to many, many foods that they clearly tolerate. And we all get this consultation, right? Like, oh, I want my child's eczema to be better. So the pediatrician told me to knock out these five foods that were on the IgE testing. And what I say is, look, I'm willing to accept that the price of um, not developing food allergy is your eczema might be a little bit worse with some of these foods incorporation. And I said, what we really don't want is for your kid to go from having maybe mild food-driven eczema to over-immediate food allergy that you really have to worry about. So I think what we want to do is manage that eczema with best practices but also to the degree possible, keep those foods in the diet because that really is the heart of the matter, which is primary prevention. So otherwise they won't be seeing me for OIT two years later. So which right. is good for business. <laughs> so, so the phrase I use, and I totally agree with you, is short-term pain, long-term gain. Excellent. Let's get through the early infancy eczema. Let's go aggressive skincare. Yeah. Four or five X a day moisturizing. Yeah. Uh, if we need topical steroids, use topical steroids. And let's feed, feed, feed. Let's get through this so they can be a normal kid. We don't want these kids to be sitting by themselves with food out at the table. Right. We don't want these families and these kids who are afraid to go to sleepovers or social events because they're afraid of potential quote-unquote poison wherever they go. It's a great phrase. I mean, Short-term pain, long-term gain. I mean, the burden of food allergy is just immense. Like you talked about, not just not just medical burden, it's like a social burden, all these things that go into it. And so, yeah, if we have the opportunity to see a 12 or 18-month-old 
and talk about the eczema and say, look, it's okay to keep these foods in. And the best practice is to do so as long as it's not already an immediate allergy. For sure, we'll take that short-term pain off every day. You're not going to cure the eczema by taking a bunch of foods out of the diet yeah. either. You may, yeah. It may get a little bit better, but you are not going to cure the eczema. Time often yeah. Yeah. cures the eczema. That's right. That's uh, right. Time's our friend when it comes to eczema. Well, guys, we've come to the end. This was a lot of fun. I want to thank my good friends and colleagues, Dr. David Fitzhugh, Allergy Partners of Chapel Hill. Thank you, Dr. T, for being the most absolute best co-host. And as always, our family is here to take care of yours.